0: Welcome to Mosaic, the EDC podcast. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity with the EDC staff around the world. What makes young children fall in love with science? EDC's Cindy Hoysinton says that informal experiences, such as digging in a garden or looking at stars with a loved one, are essential to inspiring the next generation of scientists. For years, Hoysington has been helping schools, families, and museums integrate more informal science opportunities into children's daily lives. In this podcast, she discusses how informal science opportunities can help every child believe that they can be a scientist, and what role parents and educators can play along the way. Cindy, thanks for coming in today.
1: Bert, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So you're an early childhood educator, and at EDC, a lot of your work is focused on creating more opportunities for children to do science. So let's dive right on into that. What kinds of opportunities do young children need to develop a lifelong interest in science?
1: Children need to be actively engaged in direct experiences with phenomena that they come across in their own worlds. Um, they need opportunities to wonder about things, to ask questions, to explore them directly, to collect information about you know what, what they're observing, and to begin to think about what does this mean and help them make sense of the world. And these are all things that children naturally do, actually, in their play.
0: So is this happening in the U.S.? I mean, are, are children getting these opportunities to learn and play and, and do science?
1: Well, it's very variable. So you see some states and districts and schools really taking up, if not the next generation science standards themselves, um, you know, modifying their own state standards to reflect this vision of really getting children actively involved and really promoting thinking versus just giving kids science information. What we tend to see is that it happens much more in more wealthy communities versus in communities in which low-income families and other families that have been kind of historically underserved, especially in science and STEM, including black and brown children um, and children who are learning
0: English as a second language. So take me through what one of these rich science experiences looks like, uh, especially if if it's not in a formal classroom.
1: Okay, so thinking, and, and that raises the whole issue of experiences not just in school, but experiences outside of school and how important they can be, um, because they often tend to be much more hands-on and can lend themselves to, to these kinds of experiences. So an example would be if you, in, and I'll make a comparison between in school and out of school, if you were going to learn about the needs of living things, for example, in school, the teacher might read a book to the class, and the ch- children would be expected to kind of learn co- the concept that all living things have needs through literacy, through a literacy experience, whereas there's a, it's more likely outside of school that children would have an opportunity to actually engage with real living things. So you know, following ants on the sidewalk, digging digging for worms, um, comparing different types of worms, and, you know, shining a flashlight on them to see how they respond to, to light, putting different kinds of food down to see which ones do they gravitate for, toward, um, what what's their preferred food. So, and then having opportunities to to observe what these living things are doing and think about what that means. Oh, so, you know, all in beginning to to realize not just worms need food, not just ants need food, but all living things need food. And then you can even extend those experiences into the plant world and start thinking about how plants get the things they need, and those things are also very similar to what animals need, including including me, including including us as human beings.
0: And then how do those informal experiences help build children's own desire to pursue science or to, to see themselves as scientists?
1: That's that's a really good question, because this is another thing that we see. We see that especially for children of color, especially for children learning English as a second language, all, all young children are very excited and motivated to do science. But somewhere around between third grade and middle school, some children just lose their interest. They don't see themselves as capable science um, thinkers and learners. They don't view themselves as someone who could be a scientist. So they don't, they look at pictures of scientists and hear stories about scientists and they don't see themselves reflected in that. Whereas in informal experiences, when there are opportunities to really get more actively involved and also to pursue your own interests, um, which is something that doesn't um, always happen in school. Um, so if I'm particularly interested in living things, or if I'm particularly interested in in how objects move on ramps, or how things move, or I'm particularly interested in noticing different kinds of sounds and how, how they can be used to make music, I can pursue that interest with my family or with an informal educator. And that makes me realize that my interests are also science. And informal experiences often tend to introduce kids to people who do look like them, people who do talk like them. And so I can see role models for, oh, if if they can do science, then I can do science too. And there's absolutely research to show that those types of informal experiences are more predictive of a child's ongoing sustained interest in doing and learning science than in fact formal school, early formal school experiences are. And um, Sherry Turkle, who wrote Falling for Science, Objects in Mind, she interviewed, for example, hundreds of scientists and asked them, what was that one transformative earliest experience that you can remember that made you want to be a scientist? And The overwhelming majority of people did not talk about something they did in school. They talked about an informal learning experience that they had with a parent or a grandparent or some kind of a special caretaker that they had as a young child.
0: So now let's, let's turn to your work. So tell me about your work to promote more of these informal science learning opportunities for children and families.
1: Well, we've just completed a couple of projects where where our focus was really on um, getting families engaged in their children's school science learning, and one of the reasons that we want to do this is because families are the ones who have the opportunity to offer their children these informal experiences outside of school. And so in literacy and academic development for English learners through science, although we did work very intensively with teachers and and helping them develop their own practices. In teaching science, we also had a large family component. So for um, every exploration the teachers were doing in class, we had some take-home resources, including some simple materials so that children could do related explorations at home. So when teachers were doing living things and focusing on plants in school, we sent home some seeds and little plastic plant pots, along with guidance on what to do with those things and other kinds of activities, suggested activities that parents might do um, within the context of their daily routines to support children's learning about living things.
0: Now, you've also just finished your report on PBS Kids Play and Learn Science. Tell me about that work. It was a
1: small-scale study done on a PBS app that was developed specifically for parents. So it has a child-facing side where it has these developmentally appropriate science digital games that kids can play on four different topics. But it also has a parent-facing side, and I think one of our goals in this study was to really help parents dig down into the app and realize that the app wasn't just about games, but that it included lots of not only activities that they could do with their children at home um, with basic familiar household materials, but also ideas and tips for interacting with their children as they did these activities in ways that would promote children's active investigation and their thinking versus just kind of giving them information or telling them what to do. So I had a funny experience. We, we, we also used the app to create some family science events for families in two different programs, one in Malden, Mass., and one in Cookville, Tennessee. And so we had some water explorations available for for families to do together and some materials of different shapes, sizes, and weights for the families and children to drop into the water to see what happened. And when I overheard one of the parents saying to the children, saying to their child, well, all heavy things sink, all heavy things sink, you know, telling the child. And in fact, that's not actually scientifically correct information. So going over there and getting engaged and saying, hmm... You know, feel this this big, heavy wooden block. What do you think that's going to do? And then, you know, of course, the parent said that's going to sink because it's heavy. And then when we put it in the water, of course, it didn't sink. So, you know, using those kinds of interactions and and hoping that they model for parents the kinds of interactions
0: that we'd like them to have with their children as well. So what happened when the parent realized that he was wrong?
1: The parent was really surprised yeah. and kind of said, oh, I guess all heavy things don't sink, you know, so without without embarrassing anybody for not having the right answer, but just kind of getting that idea across that, you know, sometimes it's better to act as a co-explorer and a co-investigator with your child and ask those questions that are going to encourage them to test things out versus sometimes giving information. And, and this idea that heavy things sink you know, is is a pretty universal explanation that's given by teachers and parents <laughs> all over the place to kids, but that just, you know, giving information, not only is it not really helpful in terms of promoting the kid's own inquiry and thinking, but it could be wrong. Right.
0: So one of the ideas that you've brought up a few times today is that it seems like science isn't something that one person does individually. It's, it's, very, it's very community-based. You're doing it with a, a parent. You're doing it with a teacher. You're doing it with, with a friend. Um, Tell me why that's so important. Many
1: people, when they hear the word scientist, they picture kind of a middle-aged white guy with glasses on and a pocket protector working alone in a lab with test tubes. But in fact, that's really not the way most science happens. Science is a really collaborative and communicative discipline. And so even when you, you know, if if you look back at some of the greatest science discoveries that are that are often associated with one person's name if you dig a little deeper you'll find that there were many 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 people working toward that kind of pivotal moment over many years and communicating together and comparing you know their results and replicating one another's experiments um so so really one of the things that we want to do to to foster their, their view of themselves as scientists is to help them realize that science is communicative, science is collaborative, science is something um, that can be personally meaningful as well. It's it's not this kind of body of knowledge that you have to learn or know, but it's
0: actually something people do and create. And then finally, do you think that your work, especially around informal science and bringing more uh, more of these opportunities to preschools and community centers and uh, science centers. Do you think that your work is changing attitudes about who can do science and at what age they can do science?
1: We hope so. Beliefs and attitudes don't change overnight. And when you're working with schools, you know, the culture of school, much of the culture of schooling, especially in the very early years, is about telling kids stuff, explaining stuff to kids. And then having them learn this important information and, and, and be able to show that they learned it by, by giving it back. So, trying to shift that idea to say, at least in science, that we want the teacher to be more of a facilitator and we want parents, because obviously, you know, it's, it, the view of parenting is often the same that it's our job to explain stuff to kids and tell stuff to kids. We want them to kind of shift their their relationship to that role and to think of themselves more as listening to kids' ideas, centering some of children's explorations more on what children are interested in rather than what I think they have to learn right now, and allowing kids to come up with ideas that may not necessarily be scientifically correct and realizing that by getting those ideas out there and putting them on the table, then you can begin to address them by giving kids further exploration opportunities.
0: So, Cindy, thanks so much for coming in today and talking about this. Uh, it's really interesting, and I always enjoy talking about early science and, and what we're doing here at EDC to promote early science learning.
1: For, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking about early science, too.
0: Thanks for listening to Mosaic. For more information about EDC's work to support early science learning, visit us online at edc.org.